Good morning, LCM. Today is Sunday, May 31st, 2020. Man, we have been having an incredibly good time lately, haven't we? we Come on, with messages like star power. Somebody say star power. Star power. Where we learn that Abraham's offerings offspring are going to be glorified along with you mysterious graftans and become the rulers of all creation on the message star wars where we learn about the loyal sons of god that will displace the celestial sons of god so that the kingdom will be all in all completely submitted to jesus christ and his body as the ruling agency on earth and let's not forget about foundations Justin Treister and Judah Stevens, they've been killing it, haven't oh, they? Yes. We learned that the Rephaim are the origins of demonic opposition, but that the Israel of God triumphs as the ruling agency of God on earth. Amen? Amen. Come on, these meetings have been rich. They've been dense. They've been profound. One has to wonder, I mean, if we're going to be able to keep up with this kind of pace. Yeah, yeah, we are. Yes, we are. Yes. Si se puede. Today will be no exception. Get out your notebooks and be prepared to have your mind blown, your spirit empowered, and your purpose clarified. Today's message is called Going on the Offensive, the Stratagems of Satan. Woo! Are y'all ready? Do we have your attention yet? No, you don't sound like we have your... You sound like you're back in the Presbyterian church. Somebody stand up and give a shout for the Lord. That's what I'm talking about, church. And we will see how this takes place in the human race. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Say stratagem whenever you're there. Y'all know that's the first time you've ever said that word. (laughs) Stratagem. It's it's stratagem because it's more fun to say than strategies. Yes. Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity, warfare, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Church, this is a declaration of war. One that's against the serpent and all the undisclosed powers aligned with him. This develops into an actual battle for the purity of the human genome, of the human race. This battle gets so intense that God releases the atomic solution. And that was the Noahic flood. You know, the son of man couldn't be stopped. Because he is the Adamic bomb. Oh, yeah. The Adamic bomb. He has and he will triumph. Come on. Are you excited about the Son of Man triumphing for the whole of the human race? When I think of the Adamic bomb, I can't help but start talking about Hiroshima in hell. I'm talking about a Nagasaki on the Nephilim, (laughs) y'all. Would y'all like to see the next declaration of war? Yes. Let's go to Genesis 22 and we'll be in verse 17. We're not always the most culturally sensitive people. And I don't intend to start now. 
If your family has origins in Japan and those statements bother you, if we're going to be in a war, I fully intend to win. And that's what this whole message will be about. Genesis 22, beginning in verse 17. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. That ought to be taking on new meaning for you now. Their consistency and their number will be something heavenly. And the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. Come on, that's holy aggression right there. And through your offspring, all nations, somebody say all. All. All nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. This is a declaration of war against the gods of the nations and the nations that obey the silliness of those gods. This war declaration develops into an actual battle for the heritage and the inheritance of the Lord. The one nation on earth that Yahweh chose for himself. The nation he will use to reclaim the remnant of every other nation. I'm talking about Israel, the prince with God, the one that could not be stopped. He, their king, the embodiment of Israel, he will inherit the nations. Come on, we're starting off today talking to you about a declaration of war for the human race. Eric is just talking to us about a declaration of war against the nation of Israel itself. Let's look about, uh, at the declaration of war for the tribe of Judah. Turn to Genesis chapter 49. And we're going to read in verse 10. Come on, somebody say stratagems when you get there. Stratagems. Verse 10 says this. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. See, church, this is a declaration of war against all domestic and foreign powers, whether celestial or terrestrial, for the obedience of all nations to the tribe of Judah and to Judah's God. This develops into an actual battle for the devotion of the tribe of Judah without compromise, without contaminant, without convolution of purpose. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah could not be stopped. He has, and He will continue to triumph in every way. Can somebody say amen? Amen. Amen. That's good news. Well, this declaration of war continues to the family, and particularly the family of David. Everybody turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we'll pick up in verse 11. While you're turning there, it starts with the human race. Then it moves to the one nation. Then it moves to the tribe of Judah. And now we're going to zero in on a particular family. Verse 11, And have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring To succeed you, you will come who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. 
When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established, how long, saints? Forever. See, this is a declaration of war against all powers, against all thrones, whether they be in the heavens or on the earth. And this develops into an actual battle for the survival and supremacy of the house of David and the throne that is established forever. In fact, the root and offspring of David couldn't be stopped. He is the bright and morning star and the ruler of all creation. The surprising part, church, is that you are called to rule with him as well. Amen. In case we've thrown too much at you too quickly, we want to summarize this in a slide for you. The war has been declared on behalf of the human race in Genesis 3. War has been declared on behalf of the nation of Israel in Genesis 22. War has been declared on behalf of the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49. War has been declared on behalf of the family of David in 2 Samuel 7. While you're looking at that, these are the titles of Jesus. He is the Son of Man, a member of the human race. He is the King of Israel, the head of the nation. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the head of the tribe. And He is the root and the offspring of David. This is the shape of the battle. This is the war. We intend to win this war, don't we, LCM? Yes. It's time to get familiar with the battle tactics, the schemes, the stratagem of our enemy. You're going to have to sober your minds. You're going to have to prepare yourself for action. We want to win, don't we? Brace yourself. You're about to get acquainted with the satanic stratagem. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 1. Somebody say stratagem when you get there. Oh, we're going to get, we're going to get it in Spanish and everything. It's awesome. We'll take it in Spanish. We're pretty sure that that's Jesus' second nationality because I've never met anybody named Jesus that was not Hispanic. <laughs> Church, as we begin to talk about the satanic stratagem, his strategies, his plans, his schemes that he's beginning to work, if we really believe that we're in a war against something that is spiritual in nature, then we better figure out the stratagems that our enemy is using against us. Can somebody say amen? Amen. amen. Genesis 6.1, when men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God. And we've been talking about this for the last few services. The sons of God, the Benai Ha Elohim, saw that the daughters of men, the Benot Ha Adam, the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God, somebody say sons of God. Sons Sons of of God. Went to the daughters of men. Say daughters of men. Daughters of men. And had children by them. They were heroes of old, men of renown. See, right here at the beginning, we're seeing that Satan sought to corrupt the human race. 
See, these, these sons of God, these B'nai Ha Elohim, sought to sire hybrid offspring with humans. These giants were intended by Satan to intimidate the loyal sons of God from the plans of God. See, Noah saw them deluged. Joshua saw them broken. And David destroyed their bodies. The son of David, Jesus the Christ, teaches us how to have dominion over their leftover disembodied spirits that are here. You have to imagine what was their motive. Well, they listened to God's declaration of war three chapters earlier. And they reacted to it. Now that we see their stratagem, we're going to have to figure out our reaction to it. Sure will. In fact, the Lord called a nation into being out of barrenness in order to defeat the stratagem of Satan. Let's see how this takes place in Genesis chapter 12, and we'll start in verse 1. Genesis 12, 1, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, say country, country, your people, say people, people, and your father's household and go to the land. I will show you, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples, say all peoples. All peoples. On earth will be blessed through you. You see, church, Satan had deceived the nations at the Tower of Babel into a worldwide web of rebellion. To the point where the nations were allowed to go their own way. One nation would be used, though, to regather the other nations of the world. The nation coming from Abraham would be a means to bless or curse every nation on earth based on their reaction to Abraham's nation. Now, what do you think happened when the enemy heard that? He developed a new stratagem. Are you ready for it? Yes. Y'all want to learn this morning? Yes. Let's go to Genesis 20. We're going to pick up in verse 1, and we're going to notice that Satan is working behind the scenes to corrupt the nation that was to come from Abraham. It hasn't even been born yet, but he knows who it's coming through. Starting in verse 1. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev, and he lived between Kadesh and Shur. I'm sure of it. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Y'all should boo. It's very similar to the wording that we get in Genesis. But it stops very short, and I'm glad that it does. Verse 3, but God. But God. Man, that's that's a good point. Abimelech took her, but God came to Abimelech in a dream one night. And he said to him, you are as good as dead. Now that's a dream you would remember, isn't it? You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Man, this is a little off subject, but for those that do not respect marriage covenants, yeah, you're as good as dead. Let's get back on subject though, right? Because we're talking about Abimelech having a meeting with God where he says, you're as good as dead. 
Now Abimelech had not, somebody say, no, no, not. No, no, not. Abimelech had not gone near her. So he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? To which God smirked and said, uh, that's overstating things a little, isn't it? <laughs> Did he not say to me, she my sister? And didn't she also say, he my brother? I have not done, have I not done this with a clear conscience and clean hands? The man's defending himself. It seems that he might have been given a spiritually transmitted disease. You'll read about that right here. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you did this with a clean conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. How, pray tell, did he keep him from touching her? Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. Somebody say God's pretty serious about this. God is pretty serious about this. He'll wipe out the Philistine nation if they meddle with what he is going to birth through Abraham and Sarah. Let's pick up in verse 17 because this gets, this gets uh, more better. Then Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech. Yeah, he had to be healed. It seemed like he had some boils in some unsightly places. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his slave girls, so that they could have children again. Abraham was so important that Abimelech had to become impotent. For the Lord closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. The stratagem of Satan here becomes clear. Satan schemed to pollute the nation that God was bringing into existence. He heard the declaration of war and he understood it. His stratagem was to mix the holy nation with the nation of Philistia. Even where Abraham failed. Somebody say failed. Failed. Now I know you can't relate to that at all. Even where Abraham failed, God did not fail. He fought for Israel because Israel was the basis of his declaration of war. The Lord intervened so that Abimelech, his wife, even his slave girls could not reproduce. God fought to establish Israel in purity. Look, whenever Satan moves, the Lord is always ahead of him. Somebody say, checkmate. Checkmate. See, church. Part of the stratagem of Satan is to infect the human race if possible. To infect the very nation of God if possible. But as we continue to consider this, let's contemplate the worldwide famine in Genesis 41. Turn with us there. Genesis 41. And we're going to look at verse 57. We're going to see how that even impacting of the world around us is part of the enemy's stratagem. In Genesis 41, 57. It says that all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. Somebody say all the world. All the world. See, this famine would use hunger to drive the family destined to be a nation into Egypt and away from the promised land that they were given. Satan sought to prevent the establishment of Israel in the land. Somebody say in the land. In In the the land. land. And he used every tool available from weak brothers to an adulteress married to Potiphar, 
to a forgetful wine bearer. But the Lord was always more than one step ahead of the enemy. Can somebody say amen? Amen. Amen. Look in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 19. It says this. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Church, how big is our God? He can even use the sins of men in the process of defeating the stratagem of Satan. See, each move the devil does, each move the devil makes, it only furthers the Lord's submission hold on him. Amen. The, The sins against Joseph were the saving of lives. See, that ought to remind you of Jesus the Christ and what he came here to do. Can somebody say amen? Amen. You know, you can have so much fun with this. Am I in the place of God is what Joseph said to his brothers. The truth is, Joseph couldn't say he was in the place of God, but he could say, I'm in the place God put me. Of course, the next guy that came, he could say, yes, I'm in the place of God. That's pretty awesome. I'm talking about a chokehold, a rear naked chokehold on the stratagem of Satan. Every time he attacks, he ends up raising up a deliverer. Boy, he sure does. See, Satan's stratagems have always been to try and steal, kill, and destroy. But let's pick up in Exodus chapter 115 and see this further. We're just walking through the biblical narrative now that you have eyes to see. We want to open it up for you. And what you find out is the more specific God is about his declaration of war, the more intense the stratagem of Satan are. Mm. This becomes very important as your families find out what you're called to do. As you start to realize the heights to which you're called. You were not dangerous to the enemy before because you didn't know it, but you were at peace with him and not dangerous to him at all. As you become dangerous to him, you have to wake up to what his schemes and his tactics are. Amen. Exodus 1.15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. You see, the nation that God was calling into being would never stay slaves of anyone. They were destined to rule the creation with God. That is what the name Israel means. Prince with God. But church, you know, Satan knew. He knew this. And he so desired to kill every male child born to an Israelite family. He wanted to stop the promise to the nation of Israel and the tribe of Judah. His strategy was to murder the barely born. Boo. Boo. You know what? That says a lot about certain political platforms of our current day, doesn't it? You know, the Lord is always a step ahead of the enemy. Even if he has to use a basket... And a boy drawn out of waters just like Moses. Satan's attempts to kill again raised up a deliverer. Man, it has to be very frustrating to have the best laid plans and have God defeat them anyway. Despite Satan's best laid plans, the nation was born in the Exodus. 
And again, Satan's stratagem becomes clear as you examine the Exodus. I only want to read a verse or two since you're familiar with the Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus 14, 24. Stratagem. Come on, you're not fool already, are you? We've just begun to spar. We've, we've barely touched you with leather. You, you better stand up straight. You better raise up your chin and brace yourself because it's going to get real in here. Exodus 14, 24. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army, and he threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so they had difficulty driving. If you want to see a modern example of that, watch Brenton anywhere that he drives. Although I was here when Ibrahim learned to drive in this country, and I gotta say, Egyptian driving hasn't improved a lot in the last few thousand years. Wheels still come off. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites, for Yahweh is fighting for them against Egypt. See, saints, you know the story of the Exodus, how the Lord judged the gods of Egypt and delivered his nation. The Lord understands the stratagem of Satan and that of Satan's pawns. The Lord is able again and again to predict the enemy's strategy and use it as a tool against him. So in a desperate attempt, in the midst of obvious defeat, Satan sought to have the fledgling nation of Israel destroyed by the military might of Egypt. But the Lord intervened and gained glory for himself. Now, if you're an astute Bible student, how many of you are serious Bible students? You may argue, wait, wait, the Lord planned this. The text says so. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The Lord is so aware of the enemy's tactics that he can anticipate them and utilize Satan's every move against him. Come on, that's good. Satan schemes, but the Lord fights for his inheritance. (laughs) Satan plans... But the Lord fights for his heritage. Satan makes manipulations. But the Lord fights for the nation he chose for himself. All of Satan's schemes end up being glory for our God. And magnifying the extent to which the Most High is supreme above and beyond all. Come on, church, are you getting this? We're talking about a story that's thousands of years old, and the Lord is making it completely applicable to each one of us right here in this room. The idea that a satanic stratagem, that the Lord can see what He's doing, He understands it so well that He can allow that strategy to start to take place. Then He can overcome it and gain glory for Himself. My goodness, let's turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 13, and verse 21 to see how this continues. Numbers 13, 21. It says this. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob towards Lebo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron where Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai. These are literally names of giants. The Bible is naming them. Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai. The descendants of Anak lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zon in Egypt. See, the God of Israel had told Abraham 400 years earlier 
that the exodus would take place and that Abraham's descendants would come back to the promised land of Israel. See, the Lord knew Satan would try to prevent it. But just like Babe Ruth calling the pitch that he would hit as a home run or Cassius Clay calling the round he would knock an opponent out in, the Lord gave the enemy four centuries to build his defenses. Come on, do your dangdest, copper. Let's do this. Like much of Satan's stratagem, the devil's approach seemed to have uh, some short-term success. The descendants of the Nephilim, the Anakim, a group also called the Rephaim, set up residence in the tribe of Judah. But church, that's not where the story ends. Turn with us to Joshua chapter 15 quickly. Joshua 15, 13. Let's see how this continues on through the scripture. Joshua 15, 13 says this, In accordance with the Lord's command to him, Joshua gave to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, a portion in Judah called Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak, the very father of the Anakites that we've been talking about. From Hebron, Caleb drove out the three Anakites, Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. By the way, Caleb is somewhere over 80 years old right here. Getting it done! In his 80s, he's going out and he is driving out demonically imposed actual giants in the land. See, God gave Satan 400 years to build his defenses. And in one-tenth of the time, Joshua and Caleb tore them all down. Come on, somebody say glory adios! Come on! In one-tenth of the time, God tore it down. Oh, those men had a si se puede kind of attitude. You know what? This is the right way to look at that, Pastor. And it's worth taking a sober moment to exhort this body that it should have been done on day one. Yeah, that's true. You know, we as the people of God must see the stratagem of Satan and defeat it without delay. No delay. These Rephaim continued to be a problem through the day of David because Israel was slow to finish the actual job. Are there men in this room who want to win without delay? Come on. I'm talking about day one. I'm talking about D-Day kind of mass invasion of the enemy's defenses. You know what these pastors have just described is so important. Very often we look at what is a tragic mistake and because God makes it work out because he loves and is merciful, we act like it's a bigger victory than it actually was. See, one-tenth of the time is impressive, but you know what would have been more impressive? A day one victory. I'm so glad that there are men in this room who want to win because Joshua and David killed the Rephaim, but it is Jesus and his followers that must drive their demonic spirits from the land, from the world, and from the entirety of the creation. I want you to consider a map for a minute, and then we'll move on. When you're looking at this map, the same lingering problem areas throughout the biblical conquest are still a problem today because they're demonic strongholds. In that southwest corner, that's the Gaza Strip that's on the news all of the time. This was the Philistine stronghold where they lived with Rephaim into David's day. In fact, David and his men killed the last of them in three cities from that area. Today, it's a haunt for demons. 
In fact, they motivate people to lob rockets at innocent people and call themselves freedom fighters. That area in the northeast corner uh, of the map, Golan. Golan is where Og, the last king of the Rephaites, reigned from. And, and he was killed in Moses' day, but the truth is, that area is still inhabited by the same entrenched spirits that were there at the earliest times. And it's still an area of contention today. That giant circle in the center of the map, that's what the maps call the West Bank. Of course, the Bible simply refers to it as Samaria. This was the central place of Israel's compromise with foreign gods, lesser spiritual beings. And now... It's a demonic stronghold. Look, we really have no time to waste. The consequences and the cost are too high. Understand, Satan doesn't want to let go of his territory. He has a stratagem to defeat you, and you must embrace the war on every level for the human race, for the nation, for the tribe, for the family, on every level. Come on, somebody say, no time to waste. See, Satan attacks, these satanic attacks, his stratagem against the house and the throne of David were relentless. See, we can't go through them all right now, but we want to show you two very quickly. Everyone turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 21, and we're going to begin in verse 4. 2 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 4. You ready to learn something you don't know? Okay, you don't want to tune out. It's about to get complicated a little bit, but I promise you didn't know it beforehand. Afterwards, you'll say something comforting to yourself like, you know, I, I've read that before. I'm sure you have, but you wouldn't have known if we asked you. <laughs> Second Chronicles 21 and verse 4 says this. When Jehoram established himself firmly over his father's kingdom, he put all his brothers to the sword, along with some of the princes of Israel. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, uh oh, as the house of Ahab had done. For he married a daughter of Ahab. Somebody say, uh oh. Uh oh. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, listen to this next phrase. Because of the covenant the Lord had made with David, the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David. He had promised to maintain a lamp for him and his descendants forever. Wow, we read that passage earlier today. See, Jehoram was of the house of David. He was the fifth king after Solomon, and he reigned around 840 or 850 B.C. He was a pretty terrible king because he was insecure. He was full of compromise. At least that was for them way back there in those oh, days, yeah. right? There's nothing applicable in that for any of us. Satan's stratagem was to have one brother put all the other heirs to the throne of David to death. Wow, what is it when families start destroying families? This strategy has been employed since Cain killed Abel. However, God made an unbreakable, unconditional, irrevocable promise to the house of David. And the throne survived on through his youngest son, Ahaziah. See, the Lord is able to discipline the house of David Even while he keeps his promise. Yeah, he keeps his promise. He does. It's sure. I'm going to love you forever. Forever, girl. So many guys never kept that promise, but God is not like those guys. He keeps his promise. Oh, he does. 
When he says forever, he means forever. Did you say special discipline? I think, I think we need to take a look at a very, very special form of discipline that Jehoram received at the rebuke of Elijah. Wow. Let's read verse 12 and see how this plays out. Amen. Shut the back door. Yeah. Jehoram received a letter from Elijah the prophet, which said, This is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says. You have not walked in the ways of your father Jehoshaphat, or of Asa, king of Judah. But you have walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. And you have led Judah and the people of Jerusalem to prostitute themselves. They was hoeing. They was. Mm. Just as the house of Ahab did. You have also murdered your own brothers. Wow. Members of your father's house. Men who were better than you. Wow. Killing off those in their own house that are better than they are. Man, how does God respond to something like that? Let's see how it falls out. So now the Lord is about to strike your people, your sons, your wives, everything that is yours with a heavy blow. You yourself will be very ill. Oh, but not just ill, saints. With a lingering disease of the bowels. Wow, pastor, help us analyze that verse. (laughs) Sure, sure, we'll look at every detail. Was it just a lingering disease of the bowels? It went even further to say, until the disease causes your bowels to come out. Whoa, man, if that doesn't get a man's attention... I have no idea what else would. Can, can you see? Yes. Yeah. Start repenting now. What we should take note of is that the Lord was serious about maintaining his promise to David's house. But there is always a price for sin. He prostituted himself to Baal and his Baals, his bowels fell out. Man, in fact, you know, sometimes the Lord defeats the stratagem of Satan simply by punishing those who participate in them. But we want to leave you with something very, very clear about this passage and this event. Sin, everybody say sin. Sin Sin. is a pain in the butt. Sin is a pain in the butt. Let's pick up in 2 Chronicles 22. One, I promise we're not just doing this for the humorous part of the story. In fact, it's not all that humorous when you consider that it's going on in our own generations. It's going on in our own families. And you excuse it because they're family. Mm. Look at 2 Chronicles 21, 1. See, the thing is, is when Satan finds a stratagem that he deems successful, he employs it again and again. We're going to be examining Jehoram's youngest son. He's the sixth king of Israel, or rather Judah, and his name is Ahaziah. Verse 1, the people of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, Jehoram's youngest son, king in his place. Since the raiders who came with the Arabs into the camp had killed all the older sons. So Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, 
king of Judah began to reign. In successive generations, we're seeing entire groupings in a family wiped out. This is because they are the focal point of the battle. This is because they are dangerous to the enemy. The higher the calling and the more serious a man takes it, the more serious Satan takes him. That's why Israel is in the news every day. That's why they're attacked by all of the nations of the world's media. Let's pick up in verse 2 because it's about to get worse. Are you ready for it? Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem one year. His mother's name was Athaliah, a granddaughter of Omri. Ahaziah's mother is Athaliah. She's going to go on to do something in verse 10 after she finds out Ahaziah dies. And I'll help you with these names in a minute. But catch this major point in verse 10. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she's looking at her son and he's dead. She proceeded to destroy the whole royal family of the house of Judah. Is that incredible? Look, while I read this, if the sound booth would put the slide on the screen, I'm going to continue to read this for you. Athaliah descends from the northern kingdom of Israel. Athaliah marries Jehoram, who is king of Judah. Jehoram's son, Ahaziah, is who we're dealing with here. And when he dies, Athaliah is putting to death her children and grandchildren. Man, very few of us have relatives that are as murderous as this old wench, but a few of us do. It's like watching a vampire movie. Verse 11. Now, let's just do 10 again. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family of the house of Judah. But Jehosheba, a funny name, but a beautiful woman here. But Jehosheba, the daughter of King Jehoram, took Joash, son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the royal princes who were about to be murdered, and put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Because Jehosheba, the daughter of King Jehoram, and wife of the priest Jehoiada, was Ahaziah's sister. She hid the child from Athaliah so that she could not kill him. He remained hidden with them at the temple of God for six years while Athaliah ruled the land. Just so you don't miss this, go back to that slide quickly. Athaliah is trying to kill her children and grandchildren. And then what we have is we have Auntie Jehosheba. Somebody say Auntie. Auntie. Auntie Jehosheba, who is the wife of a Levite named Jehoiada, she protected her family line by saving her nephew, Joash. Joash only survived, and he's a, he's a descendant of David. He has to be a king. He only survived because there was one family member who did what was right. In a nest of vipers, there was one who did what was right. And of course, Jehoiada the priest ends up raising Joash. Now, one of Satan's stratagems is generational sin that seems to get worse in every generation that repeats it. If you want to break the cycle, you have to break from the system that is fostering it. 
That's why the sword is the word of God that often separates family members. Joash, he was hidden in the temple. You might need to hide Joash in the temple. This preserved the line of David. Joash did well as long as the priest Jehoiada was alive. See, there's such a message in this for you, saints. Do you want to break the sinful cycle and the stratagem of Satan? Yes. Well, then you need to hide yourself in the dwelling of the Most High and develop the closest of all possible relationships with the true priesthood of God. That's the only way to break your family cycles. You will never break those family cycles by continuing to compromise. You just become part of them. Come on now. Church, you can see from these passages that some of Satan's most effective stratagem come from the unholy, the disloyal, the dishonorable actions of those that are supposed to be in the family of God. But did you hear what Eric told us today? It only takes one. It only takes one person to stand up and act righteously to break the generational cycles. Come on, that is that your ash into the temple. Get your ash in the temple. Now that we've seen a few of these, let's round out our Tanakh references by recapping a few obvious outward attacks in the next slide. See, this next slide that we're putting up for you is one that we want to talk to you about. The next one that has Sennacherib on it. As we see Satan's stratagem continue. But what happens is, is we're going to try to recap some important parts in the history of Israel. Important moments that make a difference in them. See, in our country, we're losing the fact that uh, the average person doesn't know much about the history. The slide's not working. Don't worry about it. I'll tell you about it. It'll be in your notes when you download it online. You should know these stories, and we want you to know these stories because they are an important part of an attack of the enemy against God's people, and you see how God thwarted it each and every time. These are more pivotal than than an American revolution for us. These are more pivotal than what happened in Vietnam, and we're sharing them with you now. See, Sennacherib tries with despotic desire to destroy the Davidic line and the whole nation. In Isaiah 36 and 37, that's what this story is about. And what God does is He sees the enemy approaching. He understands and He puts a stranglehold on the enemy. See, God intervenes by annihilating Sennacherib's army with one angel. Somebody say, one angel? One One angel. angel. See, it takes one angel like Auntie that will come in and save a nephew. It takes one righteous person. In this case, God said, I can defeat an army of 185,000 soldiers with one angel. Come on now. See, that also it reminds us in the writings about Haman. The entire book of Esther is trying to show a group of people that are trying to kill the nation of Israel yet again. But God intervenes by hanging Haman on his own gallows. Man, we are talking about a God that isn't just one step ahead. He sees what's coming and he raises up righteous people to be able to stand for him, to be able that he can use and operate through that he might gain victory. One has to wonder though, would God have sent the singular angel to destroy Sennacherib's troops If Hezekiah had not laid the problem out before the Lord, if Isaiah had not been in the counsel of God and knowing God's will and bringing him answers, one has to wonder when you're looking at the book of Esther, what would happen if this young girl had been off playing Xbox or something instead of listening to her righteous uncle's 
Wisdom and counsel. See, when we show you God's rescue, please don't think that you don't have a part in the war. In fact, you're essential. This war has to be won through the human race. Church, the importance of these events surrounding Sennacherib and also Haman could never be overstated. If Satan's stratagem had gone unchecked, if it hadn't been dealt with, there would be no Jewish people for an actual Messiah to come through. If there were no Jewish people and no Messiah, there would be no Judeo-Christian influence in the world today. We're talking about tipping points that change the world. What would the Middle East look like? What would Europe, North America, all of Latin America look like if this happened? But men like Isaiah, Hezekiah, Mordecai, and righteous girls like Esther. Amen. Were all God needed to defeat Satan's most deadly strategies. See, your role is more important in the plan of God than you may have realized. Are you all ready to go to the Newer Testament? Yes. Go ahead and turn to Luke. How important can a 14 to 16 year old girl really be? I mean... In most congregations today, people work really hard to remove the youth from the main service. They put them in fun, even carnal environments, where they can just enjoy being a kid. I mean, right? This is the time in their lives when it's all about games, guys, movies, music, and popularity, isn't it? You know, after reading the next passage... You may have to ask yourself if this in itself is not an undetected stratagem of Satan operating rather blatantly in most churches. Let's pick up in Luke 1 verse 30. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Yeshua. He will be great and will be called son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. The declarations of war have continued from Genesis all the way through to Luke. God has never changed His battle plan. And He never will, no matter what theologians say. We'll give Him the throne of His father, David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob, Yaakov, Israel, forever. His kingdom will never end. I want to encourage you, no redefining is necessary. He meant exactly what He said. Maybe the only thing worse than the cycle of generational sin that we saw in Second Chronicles with the backdoor explosions yep. is the satanic stratagem of the low expectations that many today place upon what the Bible calls an adult and you tend to think of as a child. Come on. That's a really good word. Wow. Yeah, let that settle for just a second. When do we reach maturity? Well, if you believe what's being taught popularly now, 
somewhere after college, somewhere after you said, we've extended adolescence to an embarrassing level. In the Bible, you were considered an adult when you hit sexual maturity. Between 12 and 13, you just had to learn to be a good adult. Mary was somewhere between 14 and 16 years old, and she had enough relationship with the Lord to be an instrument the Lord would use to save the human race. And you don't expect your teenagers to show up on work day. Somebody has to leave their wife and children and come and help you work because your children and grandchildren are off eating donuts. Mm. Mm. This is a stratagem of Satan. How would we ever win a world war, much less a cosmic battle for the planet? The rulership of the creation would depend upon Mary's relationship with the God of Israel. Now this may seem like a strange turn in the battle for the human race. In a battle for the nation of God. In a battle for the tribe of Judah. In a battle for the Davidic throne. But Yahweh is completely secure. He knows those who are His. He's not threatened by using weak, lowly, discounted, or despised things. He glories in overcoming the stratagem of Satan with the underdog. You know, this, this kind of behavior, it emboldens the enemy though. He sees the opportunity to overcome something frail, something insignificant, something underestimated. In the end, Satan's strategies are always undone by his own pride. My warning for you is to make sure that you don't participate in his stratagem mm. wow. with the low expectations that you have on people that haven't yet reached 30, haven't yet reached 20. At 13, expect them to grow up in the faith and become something or you are kneecapping them. And about half the time, it's just because you're really good at what you do and don't know how to teach anybody else to be that way. Wow. Ooh. Man, what a good word for us today. Church, speaking with satanic stratagem and attacks on the innocent. Somebody say innocent. Innocent. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 16. Stratagems. Even as you're turning, you should be thinking about what was just said to you. I'm intentionally not jumping into this verse for a reason. I'm letting that sit on you for just a second. Have we hurt your feelings? You, you all look very somber. You, can somebody smile? Somebody in the room show me teeth? Not canines, man. Actual smiles. Real teeth. Okay. I just want to make sure. We were born to fight. I just want to know whether I needed to fight to get out of the room. <laughs> Matthew two sixteen says this. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. <laughs> He was absolutely, demonically so, furious at what had happened. So much so that he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. See, what started in Moses' day, that the barely born were being slaughtered. By Herod's day, anything under two years old and down could be murdered without remorse. Wow. Are you reading the Democratic version there? (laughs) No, sir, I'm not. (laughs) But it does make you wonder about what's going on in our world, our political platforms. 
And by the way, we're for neither side here. We are for the we are on the Lord's side. Amen. No, I'm a Jesus Terrian. <laughs> That's right. See, in the war on the human race, on Israel as a nation, on the tribe of Judah, and on the family of David, children two years old and down were killed for being born in the town of David's birth. That was their only crime. They were born where David was also born. Man, this is a satanic stratagem. But Yahweh was aware of Satan's strategy. He didn't have to react to it. He anticipated it and had Joseph and Mary leave in advance so they were safe in Egypt at the time. See, let's look at verse 19 of the same passage. After Herod died. That should be your response. Sometimes the best contribution somebody makes to the human race is when they leave it. (laughs) After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Man, the Lord did such a good job of defeating Egypt and judging the gods of Egypt way back in Exodus. God sent Joseph and Mary and little sweet baby Jesus. Golden diaper baby Jesus. Golden diaper baby Jesus sent them into Egypt to protect them. Come on now. Imagine those gods of Egypt be like, uh, yeah, we better, not, we better not do anything with that. Still not walking straight, still having to sit down to pee. I mean, they're, they're having Terrible. a rough day. They're having to eat yogurt in the evenings. They, they, they're not doing good. An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up. Take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. I just want you to notice one thing in this passage. Herod is dead and Jesus is not. Oh, amen. Why do you think Herod attacked the children in the town where David's family is from? See, these declarations of war have never changed. No theological magic wizardry can change it. It's been this way since Genesis, and to understand it is to fundamentally understand the Bible. That's why we're going through this for you. We don't want you to be outwitted by the devil. You know, in fact, the stratagem of Satan can be seen throughout the life of Jesus. Everybody look at Luke 4 and pick up at verse 28. Stratagem. All the people in the synagogue were... Furious. Whoa. Whoa, there's that word again. That's familiar. They were furious when they heard this. Does fury bring about the righteous life that God requires? <laughs> no. <laughs> when you're furious, you're really being kind of a spiritual fairy, is what it is. You can't master your own emotion. You're being manipulated by a Rephaim spirit that is pulling your strings as easily as somebody might be able to beat a small child. Better grow up in your faith. Amen. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. Wow. Well, what motivation could anyone have for murdering a man who simply just read from the book of Isaiah publicly? Yeah. A man who was just baptized. A man who had just fasted for 40 days. A man who grew up in your town and no one could remember a single time that he had wronged them. Yet, like Herod, they were furious. 
an obvious sign of the demonic being displayed through them. In fact, the satanic stratagem has always manipulated people's guilt and shame from their own personal wicked behavior. And religious people are the worst. That's true. Whether you like it or not, that's true. Lost people can wear their wickedness like a badge. Religious people would usually rather kill you than have it be seen. Yeah. You know, in fact, Satan knows that they would rather kill than be seen as they truly are. Sinners. Truly sinners. If this is not the disembodied spirits of the Rephaim, the demons, then what is it? They hate God's promise to the human race the nation of Israel, to the tribe of Judah, and especially to the family of David. But the son of David, Jesus, was nearly murdered in his own hometown simply for speaking the truth that Isaiah had recorded. But that's not the end of the story. No, it's not. Let's look at verse 30. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Come on. Or the Lord of hosts is not unable to aid you. His goal is not to keep you from all trouble. It's to protect you through all trouble. Oh, amen. Come on, saints. When you're surrounded by the strong bulls of Bashan, those demon spirits, and you walk through them and their puppets, God gains glory for himself by what his people endure because they, because you trust him. Yahweh made a promise. A promise to the house of David. And he intends to win this war through the Davidic son and his men. Because there are no powers. There are no rulers. There are no authorities. Whether of heavenly origin or earthly origin. That will stop God's promises. But you must realize this one thing. That we are at war. Look, we can see the stratagem moving forward throughout Jesus' life. And... I see that we're getting on in time, and I want to hold your attention span. So we're going to walk through Mark 4 and Luke 8 in a condensed version on a slide. Both have to do with storms. They might be the same event, or they might be two very uh, similar events. But for the sake of time, I simply want to say, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, an Israelite of the tribe of Judah and a descendant of David, was on his way to a region called Gadara which of course is formerly known as Bashan, where Og used to rule. When he gets off of the boat, he has to deal with a demonic power that calls itself Legion. Jesus puts them into pigs to show exactly what they are. And the pigs show more class than most people. They're not willing to live with those demonic spirits for a moment, but most people will. Now, what I'm curious about is what happens on the water. On the water in both stories, Jesus is with professional fishermen. They're on a lake that they grew up on. And they are terrified. They're professional fishermen. Have you ever seen uh, Alaskan crabbers? (laughs) Have you ever seen people in the Bering Strait? They didn't pray for better weather during this event. Jesus rebukes the storm. It's a supernatural storm. The storm had been so severe that waves were swamping the boat. 
It was a mortal threat. This was not an ordinary storm. This is the stratagem of Satan to drown Jesus and the disciples. Of course, he was asleep on a cushion. The Lord is completely unthreatened. It's like watching Cassius Clay in his heyday. He could lean on the ropes, let you beat on him for a while, and knock you out at will. His mama called him Cassius Clay. You ought never refer to him by that wicked Muslim name. Hey, we are in a supernatural battle. There are entrenched regional enemies that we are dealing with. The war is for the destiny of the human race. And it's dependent on the fate of the nation of Israel. There is a king from the tribe of Judah who has come to power and he will in the future sit on David's throne ruling the nations. We must learn to contend with the stratagem of Satan. Whether they're expressed through storms, genocides, reprobate relatives, offenses of religious people, abortion, Nephilim, demonic spirits, military conflicts, the low expectations that you have for your own children, or being deceived by... Defecting angels. We have to contend with it. It is time for our church, for the church of Jesus Christ to understand the parameters of the battle so that we can take our stand against the stratagem of Satan. We have to stop sitting on our salvation. We have to stop soaking in the latest sagely sayings and satisfying ourselves with that. If you deny the declaration of war by a lack of participation, how will you win in the battle? Your problem is you don't think that we are supposed to win. You think Jesus did it all. Well, praise God, Jesus did it all. All you got to do is believe on Jesus. You have no idea how wrong you are. That kind of thinking is causing the annihilation of callings all around us. Before we get to that, I'm just, I'm going to ask you. It's an honest question. Do you want to win? Church, as we're presenting this to you today, we're trying to connect themes that are showing you that throughout the Word of God, that you are called to something more, and you are part of a war that is ongoing. See, this can't just be vernacular that we have, and then as soon as we leave, we settle back into our little comfortable lives. What we're doing is you heard in a word of prophecy today that He's calling us to go to the worst. How do you think we're going to get there? Why do you think He's sending us there? Because He has a plan and we are at war. See, this declaration of war, we've got to remember the shape of what it is like. It is pertinent to you in ways that we're just now beginning to understand. Aren't you glad that your destiny is not to be some little fat baby angel playing a harp sitting on a cloud someday? You're designed for war. You're designed to be with Him and rule over this world with Him. There is something more. Man, on the inside of me, that makes me come alive. Even as a kid, I remember going, really? The goal of my life as a Christian is just to go and float away somewhere? Oh, I guess so. Oh, it's okay. We'll worship on a cloud forever. You need to throw away the crap that you were taught that is nowhere in the Bible. 
Come on, let's take a look at this next slide to remind us of the war that we're in. See, the war was declared against the heavenly powers on behalf of the human race in Genesis 3. War was declared and the means of victory stated as the nation of Israel in Genesis 22. War was declared and the path of victory stated as the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49. War was declared and the king of kings was to proceed from the actual family of David in 2 Samuel 7. Can somebody say amen? Amen! We are at war, church. Amen. Church, Jesus is a glorified man of the human race. That's why he's called the Son of Man. Jesus is the truest of all Israelites and their king. It said so in three languages on the day that he was crucified. Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The book of Revelation declares it. And Jesus is the root and offspring of David. The entire story finishes with this very fact. We get excited about that, right? We say, oh, Jesus is the victory. And that's true. He has his foot on the neck of the enemy. But that's not the end of the story, not by a long shot. Not even close. I want to show you something. It's simply the first step. In Genesis 3.15, where the first declaration of war was made, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head And you will strike his heel. In Genesis 3, the offspring of the woman would crush the offspring of the serpent. Jesus delivered the crushing first step. But the Messiah's body is the other foot. It involved all offspring. All offspring of the serpent. All offspring of the human race. It was a battle for the race. Not a single human being. We are to have dominion over all the offspring and power of the enemy. Not just celebrate what Jesus does. In fact, we have to drop the other foot. Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. In giving Jesus the victory, you cannot excuse yourself from needing to drop the other foot. He is a conquering king that put his foot on the neck of the enemy and then invites you, his other foot, to do the same. You have to go to war with, alongside, Messiah. When you look carefully at Romans 16, it is your feet that Satan is to be crushed under, not Jesus' feet. Your feet. He enables you to do it. You become a part of Him. Are you living in a declaration of war? Are you on what you could call a battleship destroyer? Or are you on a party pleasure cruise liner? Wow. See, it's time that you begin to recognize the stratagem of Satan to stop the high calling of Jesus Christ in your life. And the high calling is not to be an evangelist. Thy calling is not to ascend to the pastorate. Thy calling is to be a member of the glorified body of Christ, ruling the creation. He was the first man to be glorified. And you are called to rule and reign with him. Not be a fat baby on a cloud playing a harp or any other medieval moronic ideas. That reminds me, let's put Luke chapter 10, and we're going to do verse 19 and 20 on the screen. I want you to listen to this. 
This is the, this is the same theme throughout the entirety of God's word. We're highlighting just a few verses today to you. So that you would understand not only the strategy of the enemy, but you would understand our great God and his purpose for you. Look at this. This is Jesus speaking to the 70 after they've returned. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. To overcome all of the power of the enemy. Somebody say all. All. There's nothing that is left out in what Jesus is saying to these people right here. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that spirits submit to you. You know why? Because God has always had a stranglehold on them. And you're part of Him. That should not even surprise you when you walk up to someone who is demon-possessed and you're able to cast that demon out. Of course you can. But rather, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that you are a son of God. That you will resemble Him. That you look like Him. That you will be like Him. Man. You know, Pastor, as I'm sitting there, I... We, we're an hour and 12 minutes, and we don't want to offend anybody's gluteus maximus. I mean, they might not come back. But I can't help but wonder, how many beings were in the heavenly council? Seventy. Seventy. How many did Jesus send out right here? Uh, Seventy. And where were their names written? In, in heaven. heaven. Huh. I wonder whether you could connect those dots. They have authority over the spirits of the Rephaim on earth. And that's not what to celebrate. Celebrate that there are men that were born on earth that are taking the place of disloyal sons in the heavens. It seems like maybe on Friday night we got into some of these things, but I bet you still haven't strained it all out. Let's look at what we did on Friday night. Let's look at these that is what God has given us to be. You will be glorified as He is. Even your natural body will be something supernatural by the time that this is done. You will participate in His rulership of the creation, sitting with Him on His throne, just like Jesus Christ did. Uh, Hey, are y'all with me? Uh, (laughs) Oh yeah, we're going to sit on the throne with God. To Him who sits on the... Yeah, us. That's us. With him. (laughs) See, as we're going through this, the point of this is not to just run through a list. It's to remind you of where you actually stand. See, do you see now why it's so ridiculous for us to be talking to you about the sin that you should stop in your life? What kind of silliness, what kind of infantile behavior is that in us? You're designed to sit on the throne with the ruler of creation. Pastor, I, I, I don't care if I'm a doorkeeper in heaven as long as I make it in. You won't. Don't worry about it. You won't. It's not even close. You're aiming at entirely the wrong thing. Something that's completely anti-biblical that has absolutely nothing to do with what the Bible is about. Well, you might as well listen to George Strait and be propped up by the jukebox when you die. Because that is a fiction. The Bible is a war story to produce a glorified human race ruling over all of the creation. You don't go to heaven. Heaven is set up on the earth. Oh, man. I can tell that some of you have been baptized in Nazareth's hometown religion so long you would rather throw me off of a cliff than have to come to grips with the fact that what you've believed all your life is a total fiction. Has no biblical merit at all. 
Church, we are trying to realign your trajectory today. See, you're going to have authority over the nations. You're going to actually have authority over the nations. How much more should you have authority inside of your own home, inside of your own workplaces? You are designed to rule like he is. You are going to judge the angels. Pastor, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do. Well, get in the word. Figure it out. You know why? you got to judge the angels one day. If you can't figure where you're supposed to shop, if you can't figure out the little difficulties that are going on now, how are you going to judge the angels? you got to grow up. we got to get and realize that we are in war. War is good for us. You're going to be acknowledged before the Father and His angels when you do this the right way. You're, the lake of fire is not going to hurt you at all. You're going to live forever eating from the tree of life. It started off in the garden. It's going to end up in a garden-like state. But between now and then is war to make sure that it gets that way. God will be your God and you will be His sons. The Benai Ha Elohim is what we are destined for. You're going to be like Jesus. Church, you're going to be His Spirit-filled, Spirit-empowered, righteous witnesses for Him on this planet everywhere you go. Amen. Oh, church, Satan does not want empowered witnesses to God's declaration of war. And he will use every stratagem available to him to stop you. This is why Paul says this. We'll have this on the screen. Ephesians 6.10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Let me read this carefully, the next verse. For your, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Let me read it again. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You are not usually struggling with Satan directly. But instead, it is with spiritual powers trying to rule the human race. It is with spiritual rulers trying to oppress the nation of Israel. It is with spiritual authorities trying to stop the progress of the tribe of Judah. It is with spiritual dark powers that want to misdirect the family of David. And it's with spiritual forces that will try to lead you into evil so that you don't end up crushing their heads. Who's supposed to crush their heads? We are. That is why you are to put on the armament of the lifestyle of Jesus Christ. You're to walk in the truth of the word that holds you up like the belt holds up a soldier's weaponry. You are to walk righteously like a soldier wearing a guard on his chest. You are to walk in readiness for warfare like a soldier that is wearing combat boots. You are to walk holding your trust in Yahweh's plan like a soldier holding his shield up high. You are to walk meditating on your high calling like a soldier wearing his combat helmet. You are to walk into enemy territory with the word of God on the offensive like a soldier carrying a machine gun. And you are to walk through the shadow of death, praying victoriously in the spirit of God, no matter what the occasion. The way a trained soldier is always talking about 
going to war. We're going to summarize the 12 stratagem of Satan that we've covered so far today. Church, I can't tell you how important it is that what Matthew just said with Ephesians 6, you grab hold of. This lazy, lethargic attitude that says, well, I, I, I don't know, all I care about is being saved. Don't worry about it. You really will not be. That's like saying, all I know is I want to participate in the victory of the war. You were called for a purpose. You know who is with Jesus at his return? His called, chosen, and faithful followers. Yeah. America has been sold the lie that if you raised a pinky, then you're saved and will always be saved. What a ridiculous joke. I don't want to spend an hour with many of those people, much less an eternity. And I know that my Lord doesn't. This life is where you prove faithful. This life. Amen. Nobody, nobody who is entrusted with this life and does not prove faithful will inherit the kingdom to come. And it's not somewhere else. It's right here. You don't get to leave and go somewhere else. You are to make the kingdom of God here. Amen. Have you heard these these nursery rhymes told for so long that you are just not capable of grasping the truth? We want you to understand the stratagem of Satan. When you look at this, corruption of the human race, these were spiritual beings that came to corrupt the human race. Do you have desires that are birthed from demonic sources? Do they live in you? National corruption aimed at a holy people. Do you have allegiances to the wrong national or ethnicity kind of identity? It'll corrupt your holy calling. Famine, driving people to slavery. Is your work life enslaving you so that you do not do what God says to do? Wow. The answer is not to stop working. It's to trust God with the amount of work that He says you're to give. If you can't get that right, please don't think you're going to rule the nations and the angels. If you will not get that right in this life, if your priorities are so important to you that you'll ignore God's, please don't think that you will rule for an eternity. That would be kind of a joke, wouldn't it? As we continue with the satanic stratagem, Number four, murdering the males. Whether we're talking about Exodus or in the the Newer Testament with Herod. Murdering that biblical masculinity. That is a ploy of the enemy. Let's make the men more like the women. Let's make the men where they can't lead in their own homes. Are you settling for some type of socially acceptable version of this that causes you to be less of a man than what God is calling you to? What about military intimidation? Are you just getting straight up bullied? Bullied by the enemy away from the truth. Somebody just bows up to you. Something, a circumstance comes and you just start quivering on the inside. Rise up, church. Rise up. What about unnatural giant obstacles? Some supernatural trauma always seeming to get you down. Always seeming to pervert what God has said to you. Some trials that are preventing you from advancing in the kingdom because you are at war, church. 
These are the stratagems that Satan constantly uses. Constantly uses because they work on most people. But we don't want them to work on you here in this place. As we look at number seven, what about those relationships that you have with reprobate relatives? Do you need to break the cycle by separating from them? Or how about number eight, those air raids on God's house in your life? Do you need to keep getting, or do you keep getting knocked down by the same surprise attacks? You know, after some point, when you're knocked down again and again, it should no longer be a surprise. It's time for us to wake up and rise up. Is there foreign domination in your life? Meaning that, are there things that are foreign to the word of God, like Sinasherib standing outside your walls, calling and taunting you to submit to its fear, rather than the fear of God that's found in the word of God? The book of Esther contained a xenophobic hatred of God's people. I'm not concerned about what other people feel. I'm concerned about you. Do you really hate the fact that you don't fit in? Do you really despise the idea that you don't just go along and get along with the world? When we're talking about a xenophobic hatred of God's people, I'm concerned about how you feel about being one of God's people. Do you just resent that you don't fit in with everybody else? Because that will kill your calling. It's a stratagem of Satan. How about the offenses of religious people? I've been on top of this now for a little while and at the risk of really hurting your feelings, I'm just going to tell you, your homegrown version of Christianity, it's not more important than the actual biblical truth. Just because your mama said it, just because your grandmama said it, your mama's wrong. Pick up your Bible. Embrace what the actual story is. Well, I just know that I've heard this all of my life. All your life you were lied to. Wake up! Why would we keep repeating the same ridiculous nursery rhymes? At some point, you have to grab hold of the truth. And one way you'll know you'll have it is when the inhabitants of Nazareth want to throw you off the cliff rather than deal with what you're saying. Supernatural storms. Are you fearful every time your little boat gets rocked? I'm, I'm going to war for you, Jesus. I'm going to war. Wait, I broke an eyelash and I'm just terrified. I'm going to war for you, Jesus. I'm doing it. Lion of the tribe of Judah, sign me up. And then you act like a house cat. You're supposed to be a battle axe. Are you a butter knife? Are you better fit for spreading butter on bread? I want you to consider that this is not just nomenclature. This is not just an allegory there is an actual battle pastors I want you to hold me accountable I will be in this church your pastor shouldn't have to hold you accountable you were enlisted in an army I vow here and now today (laughs) if you're a soldier and you make a commitment and you break it friends you're AWOL You need to change your perspective on what the Bible story is about. You know, if you're a soldier and your commanding officer says, take that hill, you don't get to go. But the people on that hill are the same color as I am. 
But the people on that hill share a nationalistic goal that I share. You're either all kingdom of God and that comes first. Or you have an idol in your life. And that can be your political allegiance. That can be the color of your skin. And that can be the country of your birth. If you belong to Jesus, then He is your identity. Friends, when you look at these 12 things, I know, I know that something on this list is entangling you. Now, it's different for everybody. One of the chief things that demonic powers do is cause offenses. Now, the Holy Spirit will bring you to a place of conviction so that you can be called to higher ground. And you know it because you begin to recognize, you go, I will never be that again in the name of Jesus. Empower me. But an unholy spirit says, he's talking about you. How dare he do that? And you begin to want to throw me or one of these men off of a cliff. That's the devil. We're going to stand to our feet now. What we're after in this moment is we're after a declaration of war. God has declared it. And it's time to win. But like the writer of Hebrews says, you're going to have to throw off whatever of the stratagem has tangled you up. All of us have got a good plan until you get punched in the mouth. And it's not a good plan to keep offering your teeth and chin. You need to find out how to face the stratagem of Satan in your life. Whatever it is that is attacking your particular family, your particular calling, go to war with it. Don't accept it. Don't make peace with it. Don't don't have an armistice with it. Destroy it. Consider it haram, devoted to destruction. Wipe it out like Joshua wiped out Nephilim. As I pray, we're going to give you all the time that you need at the altar while we worship. Because the shape of the battle literally depends on what you do. The prophecy came forward from a man not knowing what we were preaching about today. The Lord says, prepare for battle. You can't make this stuff up. I'm emboldened to speak bluntly to you because you're important. You don't sugarcoat it, code it for soldiers. You give them the solid truth. When I pray, you do what you need to do, but more importantly than what happens at this altar is what happens when you get up and walk away from it. Father, we're asking now in the name of Jesus that your spirit, the great military commander of the army, would move upon us and get us in order, get us in line, that we would know what we must do. We thank you, Holy One.